this episode is brought to you by Harry's.com, where you can get high-quality shaving products for about half the price of name-brand razors, plus get $5 off your order when you use the offer code BEST at checkout. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Mayday.us, Common Sense with Dan Carlin, Economic Update with Professor Richard Wolf, The Young Turks, Redacted Tonight with comedian Lee Camp, and The Majority Report. You might not realize this, but you're part of an experiment. We are all part of an incredible, unlikely experiment called the United States of America. An experiment in a representative democracy. But when experiments are run, things don't always go as planned. And in America's experiment, things have gone awry. Our democracy has been taken from us. Our republic has been corrupted by special interests. That's whack. But we're not even going to explain that. Because you get it. Everyone gets it. Our government is broken. What we all want to know is how do we fix it? Well, we're Mayday, and we have a plan. We've launched a series of highly targeted experiments to discover exactly what it takes to get members of Congress to support reform. By running highly targeted campaigns in certain districts. Our goal is to win over Congress one member at a time. And as this campaign evolves, we are going to learn from the data what works and what doesn't work. And we're getting smarter as we go. Slowly but surely, we will win over Congress. We will tip the scales. And we will prove to everyone that fixing our broken government is possible. Now, some are going to say, this is impossible. Ain't gonna happen. And to that, we say, shut your wormhole. Uh, have you seen America? We were founded on impossible. We eat impossible for breakfast. Look at our history. Cynics said our founders would never win independence. Wrong. They said women would never vote. Wrong. Civil rights never can happen. Wrong again. With over 90% of the country behind us, this is happening. We're doing this. Mayday is taking back democracy. We're liberals. We're conservatives. And independents. We are academics. We're entrepreneurs. Students. Teachers. Athletes. Artists. Moms. Kids. Techies. Eggheads. And Star Trek nerds. And we want you to join us. But following us on Twitter and liking our video, it isn't enough. But actually... Please do follow us on Twitter and like the video and share it. A lot. We need more than that. But we don't need much more. We just need you to do your part. So join us. Join us. Be a part of this. It's time for us to take back. To take back our democracy. What's the most powerful entity on the planet? Let me broaden that out a little bit more. What are the most powerful entities on the planet? I bet we could have a great, long-term, wonderful debate if a bunch of us got together in a room and started putting forward our nominee for the most powerful entity or the most powerful entities on the planet. And I bring that up because... You know, in a very broad sense, and I've said this many times on this program, you know, I think the planet is evolving towards a new reality. And I don't think any of us know what that is. I mean, I love the lyrics from that Buffalo Springfield song in the 1960s. We've quoted it before. 
where they said, there's something happening here, but what it is ain't exactly clear. Because that really describes so often the future, you know, that mankind's heading for at any given time. It's part of the reason why historians always want to get several decades away from events so that they can get a, a better idea of the big picture. Because trying to figure out what's going on in your own time period is a little like trying to decide what the picture on that billboard is if you're standing five inches away from it. Sometimes you got to back up a little bit and get some distance before the picture becomes clear. And we're living in the middle of the picture now, and we're talking about, you know, what the picture is. We're a long way from a destination that we're heading closer towards all the time, but none of us is quite sure what that destination is. But you can look and see, you know, what sort of entities are deciding on the course changes. And this gets us back to this initial question. Who's in charge? Who are the big power brokers? And who are the ones deciding, you know, where we're going? Now, there's an interesting dichotomy in the modern world. The interesting dichotomy is we live in a period now which is really unheralded in human history where the vast majority of people on the planet believe that the only form of government that has any sort of legitimacy at all is some sort of democratic government, some sort of representative government, a government that governs by the will and consent of the governed. The fall of the Soviet Union kind of solidified that. There are obviously very big countries that, that don't pay um, anything more than lip service to that idea. But this is really the triumph of representative government in world history. And yet, in a funny way, you could make a pretty darn good argument that in none of those representative countries do the govern really govern. I have a almanac, the famous People's Almanac, that came out in 1975. And they have a wonderful section on world nations. And the way it's organized is, you know, they'll, they'll tell you the, the square footage or the, the square miles of it and where it's located and all these. And then they have um, a section that says who rules for each of the countries and who rules is the section where they say, well, this is a representative system with two houses of parliament, blah, 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 blah. And they go through the, the official rundown of, of the country's governmental type. And then they have a category right after the who rules section entitled who really rules. And it's a fun little piece that basically, you know, points out what we kind of all know, that just because you're supposed to be country type A doesn't mean that you actually are. And under the section for the United States, written in 1975, 40 years ago, when it says who really rules, here's what it says, quote, there are many forces at work in U.S. society, but the most powerful by far are the interlocking directorates of the major banks, corporations, and insurance companies with the backing of the leaders of the military, end quote. Now, let's recall that we are a country that is supposed to be run by the will of the people, and as Harvard professor Lawrence Lessig points out, by the people alone.
Charles and David Koch, K-O-C-H, are well known. They are billionaires among the 20 or 30 richest people on the planet, Americans, and they are extremely conservative. And they've been gathering other like-minded conservatives together to assemble money that they're going to be using, they've been doing this for years, but they're assembling money now, early in 2015, to use in the presidential campaign next year in 2016. And they had a big conference a couple weeks ago, and they announced with great fanfare that they have plans together with the other conservatives they've gotten together, but they are by far the richest among them, to spend, and here we go now, $900 million on that presidential campaign next year. Why is that remarkable? Because that's an amount of money equal to what the Republican Party on the one hand and the Democratic Party on the other are likewise expected, more or less, to spend on both the presidential and congressional races next year. In other words, if you look at it financially, we have three players in the political fights of next year. The Republican Party, the Democratic Party, and the conservative Koch Party. It's just not called that. And they'll be weighing in with their money. Well, on one hand, this is nothing new. I mean, last year, they spent hundreds of millions of dollars, too. But it is a milestone that now the Koch brothers' conservative money machine is at the same level as the Republican and Democratic political parties. It is showing, and here's the point I want to make, the complete subordination of our political discourse our debates, our public media exposure, the filling of the airwaves with ideas and propositions and arguments and claims and demands, often unverified, often false, but there in our minds and on the tube as we watch, because someone has the money to pay for that. And the business interests dominate the Republican Party's contributions, we already know that. And they dominate the Democratic Party contributions, and they obviously dominate the Koch brothers, since that's overwhelmingly who they gather, wealthy, conservative businessmen and women. So the business community has bought not just this or that candidate, but the whole operation, the whole atmosphere, the whole debate. Anybody who's unacceptable to the business community in any general way, for example, a critic of the system, sort of the way Alex Tsipras's Syriza party functioned in Greece, has what of a chance in this society with this kind of financial domination. And you know, all of these efforts 
to pass campaign finance reform. This law, that law, well-intentioned for sure. Making a little difference here or there, probably. But for the big picture, for what I've just described, here's the reality. As fast as we pass regulations, reforms, and laws, hard as it is even to do that, but as fast as we do it, they find the ways to get around those laws, to put into office people who will amend the laws, repeal the laws. This is a game. We do not overcome the control of our politics by the rich few amongst us unless and until we stop creating a rich few amongst us. How often does this lesson have to be drummed in to the minds of the American and other people before the lesson is learned? If you don't want to corrupt politics with money, you cannot equip some citizens with billions and others having a hard time making ends meet. Because those with the billions, knowing that they are the minority, and those without enough who are the majority, those with the minimum of political morality know that if they're going to stay a rich minority, they have to control the politics. They cannot allow a system to work in which the mass who don't have wealth will have the majority of votes. So if they have those votes, you've got to control what they know, what they think, what they hear, and what they see. And the money of the rich is used to keep them from any risk of democratic control. And that means you have to change the system that leads to that outcome. Otherwise, your marginal regulations and reforms will not work. I think that we all feel the same. We're tired of these games. We know that we all feel the pain. To feel and act is not the same. If you work for yourself and you're looking for a good way to manage all of the accounting headaches that come with self-employment, then you're probably going to want to check out QuickBooks Self-Employed. It's built with the needs of the entrepreneur in mind, so they make it easy to separate your business expenses from all your personal spending. They help you track and calculate your business deductions to save you money at tax time and help you prepare your quarterly estimated taxes to put you ahead of the game. Find out what QuickBooks Self-Employed can do for you and save 50% off a full year at Try selfemployed.com slash left. That's try selfemployed.com slash left. They don't care about our they keep I was told that we cannot get a constitutional amendment and we most certainly cannot get it through a convention of the states to get money out of politics. I was told that. I was told it was impossible. Impossible. Here we go. Here we go again, right? Now, uh, in Delaware, they're considering the Senate. It is uh, SCR6. That's the name of the bill. God bless their hearts. That's Senate Concurrent Resolution 6. We need 11 votes to pass it. And what happened just earlier this week? And there it is. 11 yeses, 8 noes. 
there was two people present that did not vote either way, so you needed exactly 11. In fact, there was 10 uh, until somebody came in at the last second to make it 11. It looked like it was going to go down, but all of a sudden we went. So don't get me wrong, man. It's never easy. Like, I always announce it to you after we've won. But in the trenches, oh, there's unbelievable fighting and struggle and, and effort by these great legislators that are on our side that are American heroes and by our Wolfpack team. Team, But again, by the skin of our teeth, boom, down goes uh, Delaware Senate, or up goes the Delaware Senate, declaring, as many other representatives have done across the country, we want free and fair elections. Enough is enough. Now, we still have Delaware House, so if you're in Delaware, wolf-pack.com, go immediately and volunteer. We're about to win. Be part of that winning team, and we need every single person to participate, because as you can see here, we're not crushing. Yes, in Hawaii, we pass one of the houses unanimously, but that's not the case in every state. Every state is different. So we barely won in the Senate. We got now we got to finish it. We got to go go to the House and win and get free and fair elections. So who are the heroes here? Senator Brian Towson. He's the guy who introduced it. Uh, he's the guy who fought for it. Let me show you Senator Towson, absolute American hero, one of the new founding fathers. Uh, as we reclaim our democracy here, and he explains why he was in favor of it. Now, first of all. Uh, lots of people talking about, oh, well, it's free speech, man. Uh, Sheldon Adelson has, if he does, can't give $30 million to Newt Gingrich, well, then he doesn't have any speech. Now, that's not true at all. As Senator Townsend explains, there are restrictions, right, that, that are reasonable. He says, quote, you can't yell fire in a crowded theater. Uh, you can't yell vote for me at a polling place. There are reasonable time and place restrictions, so you also can't take all of your money and bribe a politician and call it speech. That is a reasonable restriction, and we're going to put it in the Constitution so there's no lack of clarity on it. Right now, the Supreme Court says, oh, I don't know. You say to tomato, I say tomato. Uh, you say obvious bribery. I write the guy a check and he does exactly what I want. I say free speech. No, 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 no. You're, you're destroying our democracy with these legalized bribes. Senator Townsend gets it and and the Delaware Senate gets it. He wrote an op-ed about it. I want to give you one more quote from him. He said, If we fail to act, our elections will increasingly be dominated by the power of a wealthy few, not the democratic voice of the people. We would no longer be the America we now strive to protect. The American people deserve a genuinely representative democracy, and the Delaware General Assembly can help us take an important step in that direction by passing SCR 6. That is exactly right. Bless his heart. A huge uh, hero here. He took a picture with the Wolfpack team, too. Uh, now, I love this picture because look at the age range uh, and the variety and the diversity in that picture. Uh, some of our best fighters in Delaware were really strong women. I'm going to tell you about them in a second. Also, Walker there in the picture on the far right. That's a kid from New Jersey who helped pass it in his home state. He's a state leader in New Jersey. He helped pass it in the first state in Vermont. Now he's helping to pass it in Delaware. Uh, if uh, we ask for help, he gets in the car, he drives. You know that he cannot legally drink yet. I'm not saying he doesn't drink. I'm just saying he legally cannot drink. He can't drink yet. He's too young. And look at him. He's out there changing the government for the better. When everybody said it can't be done, you've got this young kid going all across the country kicking ass to get a constitutional amendment. What are you doing? If he can do it, you can do it. One of the people on his team had a broken back. She's making calls from the hospital. What are you doing? Look at what happened on the Edmund Pettus Bridge when they were fighting their, for their rights. They took batons upside the head. You can't pick up a phone and make a call? 
You can't go down there and lobby your legislators. It's amazing to actually listen to you. I'm going to tell you about one guy in Delaware that made a huge difference in that regard in one second. So let me read you the other American heroes, the legislators in Delaware that made all the difference. Senate pro tem, uh, Patricia Blevins, Senator Karen Peterson, Senator Margaret Rose Henry, Senator Nicole Poor, Senator David Sokola, Senator David Lawson, and finally, Senator Brian Bushweller. Uh, and I want to focus on him for one quick second here because he was the deciding vote and he made a promise that he would go in that direction if the vote was necessary. There's a politician who actually delivered on his promise. Yes, they exist. We found them. Isn't it amazing what you can do if you just try? So they said there were no honest politicians in the country. That's not true. You go to the local level, and there are people who actually care about their ideology, whether they're deeply conservative, deeply liberal, or somewhere in the middle. But they care about democracy. They care about free and fair elections. And Bushweller cared to deliver on his promise. And I want to give you a letter about that in a second from one of the people who fought here. In fact, our Delaware state leader is, is Judith Butler. She's a great character. She's a retired pharmaceutical scientist. And part of the reason she retired is like, look, I'm, I had enough, man. I want my democracy back. I'm going to spend a lot of time fighting for this. And she's a regular citizen, never a lobbyist, never in politics. As I said, pharmaceutical scientist. She jumps into the fray, makes a huge difference. Uh, the rest of our team in Delaware, Daniel Metcalf, I love the nicknames, Mike Fishcleaner DeMaio, Zach Phillips, Dwayne Showell, Charlie Cooper, Debbie Messina, Michelle Zeb. Look at all those strong and powerful women who are helping to get it done in Delaware. And as you can tell, look, there are other people. There's hundreds of volunteers. But these are our warriors. It doesn't take that many warriors to get the job done. The question is, can you be one of those warriors? Now, if you think you can, here's how you do it. Go to wolf-pack.com. You click on your state, and then you say, hey, I'm going to join the conversation. I'm going to join the Google group. It's so simple. That's it. You join the Google group in your state, and you're off and running. They tell you what to do. They tell you how to get involved. And they make the process really simple for you guys so you could be one of these warriors as well. Now, finally, I want to go back to our state leader, Judith Butler, who wrote a letter thanking Senator Bushweller, who's the deciding vote at the end, who's the person who delivered on their promise and was an honest politician. She wrote, Dear Senator Bushweller, my hair turned a little grayer yesterday as I listened from the balcony to the roll call for SCR 6 in the Senate chamber. Ten. Only 10. Oh, no, not after all the work that's gone into lining up the votes. And then you stepped in to save the day. You are my hero, sir. I thank you from the bottom of my heart. Remember, she retired partly to get this done, right? So when we got to 10 and we couldn't get to 11 and we were going to lose, imagine how heartbreaking it was. And then this politician who said, well, he did promise to do this. Let's see if he does it. Turns around at the last minute and does it. Amazing. So she's rejoicing and she wants to say to him, thank you for representing us. She continues in her letter. Consider that Senator Townsend and my two millennial adult children have known nothing but dysfunctional federal government during their adolescent and young adult lives. Most have just given up on the whole idea of a government that represents them rather than the special interests who fund these massively expensive campaigns. So thank you again saving the day with your heroic vote. There are true heroes all across the country. Sometimes they're legislators, sometimes uh, they're citizen warriors like you guys. Let's go find them, let's band together, let's go knock on some doors. Okay? They're not coming for us anymore, we're coming for them.
wolf-pack.com. It's dark, it's gooey, it sticks to everything you try to do. If you want to make public schools better, you can feel it dripping like tar off of you. If you want to make prison profiteering illegal, it drags on you like snot dripping down a subway train car window. Why do subways always seem to have snot on the windows? Have you, have you noticed that? Where the f*** does that come from? Just morons just rubbing, oh yeah, clean it out, clean it out. Why, people? What happened to the social contract? Anyway, the slime I'm talking about is, of course, money in politics. It impacts everything. Anything we want to accomplish is bathed in a thick coat of rotten money. Unless, of course, that thing is pro-wealthy bastards. Then money lubricates the slide so the bill gets passed and the corporations get massive hard-ons. All right? Hard-ons? Is that the right plural for that? Is it hard? Or is it like attorneys general? And it should be they had hards on. Is that like a bunch of hards on? I don't know because I went to public schools. We could fix that if the corporate money wasn't on the other side. Want an example of this? How this system works? Senator Elizabeth Warren is known for standing up against the Wall Street behemoths, the tyrants of profit. Take a look. Just look at the big banks. They cheated American families, crashed the economy, got bailed out. And now the biggest banks are even bigger than they were when they were too big to fail in 2008. A kid gets caught with a few ounces of pot and goes to jail, but a big bank launders drug money and no one gets arrested. The game is rigged and it isn't right. Mmm, your anti-corporatism tastes so good. <laughs> But the big banks don't think so. They are vampires. And Warren's words are a free-range, organic stake to the heart. All right? The banks think to themselves, wait a second, we own this system. We can't let her fart in our punch bowl or punch in our fart bowl or whatever. <laughs> so they have now threatened the Democrats, saying that if they don't shut her up, then the big banks will withhold donations to Democrats. I don't know whether that threat to, to rein in Warren will work or not, but the point is, she's the outlier. All the other Congress people and cabinet people and president people, they were reined in before they even ran for office. Most of them got to where they are because they had big money behind them to begin with. About 90% of the time, the candidate who spends the most wins the election. Over half of Congress is millionaires. Our system is being used to enrich the ultra-wealthy even more. Richard Wolff breaks it down well in his book, Occupy the Economy. If you don't know Richard Wolff, you need to get on that, all right? He rocks. He is the only economist I would ever invite to my intervention. Yeah. Here's a life hack for you. If you're going to hold an intervention, do it on a holiday like Passover so people don't have to travel for both occasions. It's two birds, one stone, you know. Then, then they can be like, Lee, we think you need to cut back on crack cocaine 
and leavened bread. Yeah. Both, both you and your bread should be less high. Richard Wolf said the 1% are not going to be so stupid as to not realize that one of the ways you secure yourself is to control the political system. And they accomplish that with their money. They use a portion of it to manipulate what the voter knows, to manipulate candidates from which the voter chooses. So how do we stop this? Well, there are organizations like Move to Amend that work to get money out of politics. There's also the possibility of a constitutional convention, which Congress is supposed to have once at least 34 states request one on a given topic. There's only one problem. Congress has simply never counted the request in the entire history of the United States. Real mature, Congress. Real mature. You have basically responded to the calls for a constitutional convention the same way Gretchen Carlson does a news report. By plugging your ears, closing your eyes, and hoping the truth doesn't find you. <laughs> But one brave man in Hilo, Hawaii, took it upon himself to fix this. Dan Marks basically phoned up Congress and said, Why the f*** aren't you counting the request? And Congress said, uh, please hold. Hey guys, why, why, aren't, we, why aren't we counting the... guys? Guys? Alright, we'll start counting the requests. <laughs> One guy did that. One guy achieved one average run-of-the-mill, everyday, blue-collar, wipe-your-nose-on-the-subway-glass kind of guy can change this country. Now imagine if every single one of us acted like Dan Marks. I mean on this topic. I don't mean entirely like him. For all I know, he spends his weekends in the back of clown cars giving handjobs to warthogs. You know, it's not a lot to do in Hawaii. But... If we all acted like him in regard to money and politics, then we could change this goddamn gutted and violated system. It's been a long, long time coming, but I know the change is gonna come. I just need some comfort, some kind of belief that this war we're fighting. The Koch brothers made a, a rather relevant announcement over the weekend. I'm not saying you should necessarily take it at face value. But they're, they have already pledged to put a billion dollars into the race. Now, I know it's $900 million, but... I imagine there's going to be money coming from other sources that they are either going to control or get matched or whatnot. And they basically said uh, over the weekend, I think one of them showed up on Larry Kudlow's radio program, yeah, you know, we contemplated just buying one, but we realized we can buy a couple candidates. And there's no reason not to. Now, it's interesting. you got to contemplate for a moment. You're Sheldon Adelson. You've just gotten off the witness stand for a wrongful termination suit where one of your guys in your subsidiary in China said, hey, uh, you're forcing me to pay a bribe to a, to a Chinese official. Uh, I don't want to do that because that's apparently against American law. And, and Sheldon Adelson said, "What? Do it? What? What do I care? 
Do what? you hate Israel or something? <laughs> yeah, exactly. What's, What's the it? matter? You don't believe the Holocaust took place? <laughs> exactly. You pay that bribe to the official in Macau, you anti-Semite. <laughs> exactly. And you tell my friend, Mr. Wu, that I look forward to having drinks with him and talking about Palestine being an invented state. There you go. That's him. Those are his twin poles. Yeah, Massive Sheldon Adelson. corruption, casinos, and Israel ultra-nationalism. I need to raise enough money so I can build my own bomb to bomb... Uh, <laughs> So, but if you're Adelson, right, you got to ask yourself, like, wait a second, do I really want to buy a guy who's already been bought by the Koch brothers, or do I want to buy my own guy? Now, if you're the Koch brothers, you're going to get out there, and he said, uh, one of the David Koch, I guess, said, uh, or I guess Charles Koch in April said that they were looking at Scott Walker, at Jeb Bush, at Ted Cruz, at Rand Paul, at Marco Rubio. But here's the thing. I don't think the Koch brothers are going to give meaningfully to Jeb Bush. I think they're going to give a little bit. But they know they can't own him because Jeb Bush has his own funding. But a guy like Scott Walker, they can own him. Rubio has his own billionaire. So I think they're going to throw some money around, but it's going to be more like, all right, there's 32 spots where the roulette wheel will fund. We will, we will put, a, we will put 100,000 on each slot, but there's a couple we're going to drop a million or two. Now, of course, when they actually do this, you can add a couple of zeros onto all those figures. What we've told them right now, said Charles Koch in April, is we're not supporting anyone. We're telling them if they want our support, one way to get it is articulating a good message to help America. Americans get a better understanding, a better appreciation of how certain policies will benefit them and all of America. So that's actually getting some real bang for your buck. I'm not going to pay you right now to say what we want you to say, but I'm going to dangle the idea that we might pay you out there to see how well you, how far you, how high you jump. David Koch went on the Larry Kudlow show, said, we're thinking of supporting several Republicans. If we're happy with the policies that these individuals are supporting, we'll finance their campaigns. So there it is. I mean, I've been saying for a while that these guys don't look at this just as we want to own the next president. They're also looking at this as we already spend tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars a year to promote these policies that benefit the wealthiest amongst us for a fraction of that cost, we can actually hire a spokesperson <laughs> who has media people following them around for the next 12 months to say these things. And that's what we're going to do. And that's why for Sheldon Adelson, he may not get he may not put all his money on the winner, but he'll get he'll get what he wants. Somebody to go around and talk about how Palestinians are not really human beings or how unions are made up of people who are just one step above Palestinians in his mind. They're not invented, <laughs> but they're terrible. <laughs> 
What you do is you go to the They're union not hall. not a fiction, but it's still pretty bad. It's pretty hard to understand how bad that is. It's in the worst. It's in the bargain bin of the nonfiction section. You go to a union hall when no one's working, and there's no one in the hall, but it's a big union hall. You drop a nuke on that hall. <laughs> you Foster say, Freeze is still going to want somebody to go around and rail against contraception. Women. And women. <laughs> right, so Rick Santorum is still going to get some. game for the amount of money he's dropping. Right. He's that odd G's billionaire. He's like, you know, it just seems to me for all the money I'm giving you, can't you just say that we ought to have like a kind of Christian Taliban situation with the ladies? I mean, that's just me. I'm the one cutting all the checks. <laughs> Remember him? He was almost sort of... Who, is that Foster Freeze? He was exceptionally creepy because he had this sort of like avuncular air about him. Yeah. Yeah, no, he was just like... He, he reminded me actually of a guy, a dad of a girl I dated in high school. Whew. Well, there was like... He, literally, that was the first time I'd ever heard that line about uh, birth control. It's aspirin. You just make sure you keep it right between your legs. Now, I had never heard that in my life. Oh, yeah. I just randomly happened to see him say that live. I have no idea where I was or why the TV was. I feel like I I just – and who did he say? Whoever – I don't remember who was interviewing him, but she actually had like a – What are you you talking talking about? about? Right. And he had this smirk on his face. Oh, no. He thought he was being very funny. Oh, my God. He thought he was being very funny. It was definitely the smirk of nobody, of someone who... Now, I heard that joke 30 years ago, and it was inappropriate. This show is sponsored by Harry's.com, makers of fine razors and other shaving supplies. Basically, a couple of guys took a look at the current state of the shaving industry, realized it was pretty much all around terrible, and then decided to do it better. Their blades are made in a German factory, and when they realized how good and affordable the blades were, they decided to just buy the whole factory. So they've got the quality blades down to a science and made them available for about half the price of the big-name competitors. Then they went and made their products incredibly easy to purchase, because you just get everything on Online and shipping is free. In fact, and this is totally true, just thinking about recording this ad reminded me that I was due for a refill on my blades, so I took about two minutes out of my day to get several months' supply of blades for about a buck fifty each, and they're going to show up at my door in a couple of days. For your first purchase, they have a starter kit that comes with a razor handle, blades, and shaving cream, all for just 15 bucks. And using the coupon code BEST at checkout takes another $5 off of that. So go to harrys.com to start getting a better shave while saving money. And to help you with your first order, use that offer code BEST to save $5 on your purchase. That's harrys, H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com. And enter the coupon code BEST at checkout for $5 off the starter set and start shaving smarter today. You've reached the activism segment for today. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, Mayday Pact's Leaders for Reform. Now, Jank on the Young Turks is doing fine on his own telling you about Wolfpack today, which you should totally support. But now I'm going to give you the update on Mayday Pack. 
While Wolfpac is focusing on state-level legislatures in an effort to amend the Constitution, Mayday PAC is chipping away at national-level politicians who are pledging to support an election reform law right now. With a bill introduced in the Senate and 151 House members already pledging their support to the House bill, that goal looks increasingly within reach. At Mayday.us, you can contribute to the momentum of identifying leaders for reform and support the Fair Elections Now Act, Senator Dick Durbin's bill which has already added 20 co-sponsors less than a month after being introduced. From the Mayday.us homepage, you can record a voice message in support of reform legislation, which Mayday will deliver to key members of Congress, call your representatives directly using their handy script, view a full list of leaders for fundamental reform, and encourage those not yet signed on to join the fight via social media using the hashtag leaders for reform. Mayday started out with a plan purely focused on influencing election campaigns, and they still plan to target and support pro-reform candidates for Congress next year. They're just not sitting on their hands in the meantime. Lawrence Lessig's ability to adapt and continue with their mission is just one more reason to support the work that Mayday is doing. The segment notes include all of the links to this information, as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Act tab at bestoftheleft.com. If taking real action to get money out of politics matters to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about Mayday's hashtag leaders for reform via social media so that others in your network can get involved too. Well, just when you thought it couldn't get any worse, uh, more bad news for our democracy. It turns out uh, two of the largest Republican donors are getting together. So that's the Koch brothers and Sheldon Adelson. Now, normally they do their own uh, political events uh, by themselves. They, you've done this for a long time. Uh, the Koch brothers do it in Palm Springs, and then they rotate uh, for the other half of the year to different fancy resorts, and they invite all sorts of people, including Supreme Court justices, Republican politicians, and other incredibly wealthy donors, uh, where they basically rig the system in, uh, in their favor. Well, Sheldon Adelson does a similar thing uh, at the Venetian in Las Vegas, which he owns. I'm going to give you a, a little bit larger description of that in a second. Well, now the Huffington Post is reporting that they're working together and attending one another's events, and that Adelson's giving about 10% of the money that the Koch brothers are raising from uh, millionaires and billionaires just by himself. So Adelson does his own stuff, and plus, he's giving to the Koch brothers. That's how rich he is. So what are their priorities? Well, first let's talk about policy, and you begin to sense uh, why the Republican Party does what it does. The Koch brothers' priorities are shrinking the federal government and minimizing regulatory and tax burdens on businesses. Hmm. Wow, that's really surprising, given that they would be the major beneficiary of those uh, policy positions. Uh, I'm sure that's just a coincidence. They're doing it out of principle and ideology, and, and the fact that they make billions of dollars if the Republican Party and the government actually does that, 
Well, that's just a happy coincidence. Okay, what are uh, Sheldon Adelson's uh, policy priorities? Well, um, they are Israel, uh, expanding defense spending, and foreign policy. This is according to the Huffington Post, but just about every other publication you read that talks about Adelson agrees. Those are his top priorities. They're all somewhat related. Now, here's the interesting part. What are the combined priorities where they definitely agree? For example, the Koch brothers actually don't care that much about foreign policy. They don't love foreign aid. They are more libertarian in that sense. They're like, nah, Israel gets the money, Egypt, Pakistan gets the money. I'd rather just keep all of it, right? But they're willing to make a deal here with Adelson, and they haven't said much about certain things that are, for example, clearly crony capitalism. Sheldon Adelson tried to kill off a bill that, uh, or propose a bill that would kill off Internet gambling, which would be his direct competitor to his casinos in Las Vegas. Clearly, clearly crony capitalism, but not a word, not a peep out of the so-called libertarian Koch brothers. So they're willing to make a deal. Why? Because they share these, these two things in common that they want more than anything else. Their combined priorities are curbing union power and killing the estate tax. So it's very logical. They both have giant companies, Adelson and the Koch brothers. They're like, the unions are a pain in our ass. <laughs> They want to go up from $7.25 for minimum wage. In some jobs, they want to go to 10 Now they're wanting $15 an hour. The poor Koch brothers are worth about $34 billion apiece. Adelson's, I think, at around $24, $28 billion. It goes up and down depending on the year. Those guys can't afford to pay a minimum wage of $15 or whatever else the union workers are asking for. No, the union workers must be crushed. Okay? And then estate tax, well, they have all that money. They don't want to give it to the government. They want to keep it inside their family. So, of course, they're against that. Gee, I wonder how we got income inequality. Could it be that these guys are legally bribing politicians to do exactly what is in their economic interest? Of course. In some sense, I, rep uh, I, I respect Adelson more because I know he's got a deep connection to Israel, but at least it's not just monetary. He actually cares about that. That is part of his ideology. Okay. So now, how are they going to do this? Well, that involves uh, taking the money and spending it on certain things. Those are their political priorities. Uh, how are they going to get Republicans elected? Well, uh, two ideas there that they're really emphasizing this time around, voter data operations and grassroots mobilization. Now, voter data is where they got their ass handed to them by Barack Obama, so they got pretty bitter about that, and they're smart people. They've found a way to adjust. They're going to pour billions of dollars or hundreds of millions of dollars into that, and and get better at it in terms of getting the information that they need to manipulate voters. The other way to manipulate voters is to mobilize the grassroots. Now, are they the grassroots? No, they're the exact opposite. They're literally the richest people on earth. They have nothing to do with grassroots. So what are they going to do? They're going to buy grassroots. Now, one of the ways they do that is they trick veterans. Oof. Now, this is the Koch brothers. Um, and again, Sheldon Allison at least cares about foreign policy. The Koch brothers largely have not addressed that issue for a long, long time. But now all of a sudden, they're concerned about veterans. In fact, that's why they, did a, they put together a group called Concerned Veterans for America. Now wait, are they part of that group? No, no, no. They're pouring money into that group so they can get veterans to be their grassroots army. Oh. So uh, here's a quote from Huffington Post. It's, get out the veterans effort is focused on states with large populations of veterans and active military personnel and it plans to use direct mail and digital ads to mobilize voters. So veterans who went and uh, perhaps uh, got wounded or did service in any other way, saw their 
brother-in-arms uh, get wounded or killed in Iraq, which was a totally useless war started by the Republicans. Useless to everybody except defense contractors and oil companies. Well, now we're going to trick you into voting for more wars, and that make us even more money, and all the other things that we like, including saving uh, taxes for the billionaires in the country. You've got another war to fight. These people are repulsive, man. You think they care about the veterans? No, they're looking to use the veterans to get their own political purposes, for their own political purposes. Unbelievable. Except that, unfortunately, in this country, it has become completely believable. Now, let's go back to Adelson's uh, fun shindig at the Venetian. Uh, here's a larger description of it. In late April, so recently, some 700 conservative luminaries, including presidential contenders, donors, fundraisers, and former President George W. Bush gathered at the Venetian Casino and Resort in Las Vegas for the Republican-Jewish Coalition's spring meeting, where Sheldon Adelson, the billionaire casino mogul and GOP mega-donor, was holding court. Now, don't get too uh, thrown off by the whole Republican-Jewish Coalition stuff, right? Ain't no coalition. I mean, of course there is. I, I don't... There are other people who are, happen to be Republican and Jewish. But this is what's being referred to as the Adelson primary, because this is where everybody goes to kiss his ring. You think George W. Bush showed up because of Eric Cantor? <laughs> no, Eric Cantor's out of office anyway. He was the only Republican Jewish congressman in the whole country, right? They're showing up to get money from Adelson and to kiss his ring. And for Bush to say, oh, please, give to the Republicans, even though he's already out of office. Um, so, uh, as, again, uh, this investigative reporter explains, the so-called Adelson primary uh, is the increasingly high-stakes battle between GOP presidential candidates vying to win the billionaire's favor by expressing their full-throated support for Israel. Okay. Now, that's his top issue. That's why uh, they're focusing on that. If they were talking to the Koch brothers, they'd be trying to get uh, legally bribed in other ways. Oh, I hate the unions. Yeah, oh, man, you guys are right about deregulation. You should get to pollute as much as you like in your refineries. Okay. Now, why are they kissing uh, Adelson's, okay, let's just be honest, ass so much? Well, let me give you a sense of context here. In 2012, this is just the stuff we know. Adelson uh, gave $150 million to a mix of super PACs. Uh, almost all, if not all, to Republicans. Okay? So when you give $150 million, and that's when, that was a little bit after Citizens United, people didn't even know the degree to which they can give, and Adelson was like, Here, take money by the bucketfuls and the shovelfuls. $150 million back then. So 2014, that's not a presidential election. That's a much smaller election. So Adelson just spent $100 million to political causes. That's why you go to kiss his ass. Now, you want to know who has done a good job of doing that and accordingly uh, will be top candidates in the Republican field? Look, this politics stuff, is, it's not that complicated, right? The guys on TV, they pontificate about debates and ideas and what does the honorable gentleman from Connecticut think. No, no, honestly, I get it right more often than not because it's not that hard. You just follow the money. You could do the same exact thing. So let's do it together, okay? So the Koch uh, uh, brothers have their preferred candidates based on giving so far and other uh, factors, how many times these guys have attended their events, etc. They are Marco Rubio, Scott Walker, Rand Paul, Ted Cruz, and Jeb Bush. Now, Adelson has his favorite candidates. They are Marco Rubio, Scott Walker, and Lindsey Graham. Lindsey Graham uh, helped him out with that bill against Internet gambling, uh, which was enormously corrupt of Lindsey Graham. 
and is one of the biggest offenders of uh, right-wing Israeli politics, not Israel overall, no, 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 uh, more war, more Benjamin Netanyahu, if Adelson needs a gas pedal on that, uh, which uh, he's on that side. Adelson's a right-winger, both here in America and in Israel, in terms of uh, political proclivity. Uh, Lindsey Graham's his guy. He's his go-to guy. Now, Lindsey Graham's not likely to win, but he's basically saying, nice job, boy, nice job. So here's some money for you while you pretend to run for president. So what is the conclusion we reach from that? The two guys to look out for, and that will do exceedingly well in these primaries, Based on this, and they haven't happened yet, so we'll see if it's true or not, Marco Rubio and Scott Walker. They've got both the Adelson money and the Koch brothers' money behind them. That's a lot of money. Doesn't mean they're going to win, but they're going to be contenders. They will have a huge leg up on the others because they were getting, they were better at getting those legal bribes. Now, finally, uh, the biggest defense that all these guys will have is, well, we supported the candidates who happened to agree with us. That's not exactly what David Koch said. Listen to what he said about money that he gives to Republican candidates. He says, we're thinking of supporting several Republicans if we're happy with the policies these individuals are supporting. Not I'm giving that guy money because we already agree. He says we'd be happy to give them money if they do as they are told, if we're happy with the policies these individuals are supporting. How is this not bribery? This is exactly what bribery is. I will give you money if you support the policies I want. Will those policies save me billions? Now, that's not an exaggeration. It is with the estate tax most literal. It is also true of other forms of taxes that they get breaks on, oil uh, speculation that they get breaks on. It goes on and on, the deregulation, all of that. But on the estate tax alone, they would save tens of billions of dollars. So I will give you tens of millions of dollars. You will give me tens of billions of dollars back. And that's how politics is run now in the United States of America. We have completely legalized bribery. This is how it works. If you don't overturn this system entirely and get the money out of politics, well, then you are looking at your new leaders. They're not the puppets who are elected by these guys. Walker and Rubio and all the other guys, they're just parroting what the money men told them to do. They wouldn't be in a position to win if they didn't. You see, a guy who opposes these folks is not going to raise enough money to be able to get into the race. So you're not going to get that candidate. You're only going to get to choose among the candidates hand-selected by the billionaires in this country. This is your new royalty. So you can do, have one of two options. You can either get used to it and bow your head and know your role that you now live in a country where we all work for the Koch brothers and Sheldon Adelson and we will do as we're told or you can fight back. The way to fight back is to do it politically, is to do it in a smart way, in a way that is going to get results. The only thing that can go above these guys' heads, since they already bought the Supreme Court, I told you, Supreme Court justices attend the Koch brothers' events. They have them in their back pocket as well. you got to get an amendment. If you don't get an amendment, these guys will rule us forever. But the good news is, every generation of Americans has gotten an amendment to make the country and to make our democracy a more perfect union. Every generation but us. And every generation was told, oh, but that's impossible. Women can't get the right to vote. They don't even have the right to vote. How can you get direct election of senators? 
when they're not directly elected. They're appointed. They're never going to agree to direct elections. We got that. We got that because of a threat of a convention. There is a way to do this. We have that way. It's called Wolf Pack. We started a pack. I know it's small. I'm sure they laugh at us now. Oh, sure, yes. You, you don't even have a billion dollars, right? You keep laughing. We keep building our army. We're going to do this the right way. We're going to get an amendment. We're going to put an end to the bribery and corruption. And you know what we're going to have? I know it seems impossible now, but we're going to have free and fair elections. you see anybody poor running in these elections? Do you see anyone middle class running in these elections? I know Bernie's trying the best he can on the Democratic side, right? He's out there and he's giving them hell. But what an exception to the rule. You know what the rule is. You got to be a millionaire or backed and or backed by millionaires and better yet, billionaires like these guys. Otherwise, you don't have a chance. We're going to upend that system. You know what we're going to bring back to you? Democracy. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Join us. Join the fight. It's exhilarating. It's the time of your life. Wolf-Pack.com. Wolf-Pack.com. By the way, we ran into the Koch brothers in New Jersey. They tried to stop the resolution we were passing there. We beat them. I thought that that was impossible. Well, we got the resolution passed. Wolfpack won, Koch brothers nothing. Let's go get them. Hi, Jay. I love your podcast. It's one of the things that helps to keep me connected with the world since I don't get out much anymore. You asked about something that we do differently, something that makes us happy. I was, in my youth, only interested in you know, making money, uh, getting involved in terrible relationships, and playing games. I was one of the people that just wanted to collect toys. And I flitted from hobby to hobby and from one thing to the next. I, I never really settled down on anything. But in 2007, I was reading a book on parrots, and parrots are dunnies. I saw an ad in the strangest place, a place that nobody had posted to in a long time, and I'd only been watching it for a couple of days. It was a Usenet group called Alt Cockatoo. There was a couple just about an hour away from me that said they had to get rid of their cockatoo that weekend. So I went down and picked up Chloe, and she rode on my shoulder all the way back. And it didn't take too long before I realized that uh, she was a lot more intelligent than any other animal I'd ever lived with. So I started digging in, and I found out that these guys are roughly the intelligence of a five-year-old child. As I tried to learn more, I realized that there were thousands of parrots that needed help in San Diego County, and there weren't any rescues in North San Diego County. So, in 2008, I bought the NOLO Press Manual on how to form a nonprofit. I attended a class at SCORE in San Diego to learn how to form one, and I founded the Chloe Sanctuary. Later that year, I took an advanced course in behavior analysis to work with parrots, because I realized that I was going to need some special skills. These guys are not like us. They don't think like us, and they don't operate like we do. In short order, our new sanctuary was full of cockatoos. 
I went from having toys and horrible personal relationships and playing games to uh, being surrounded by these creatures that are like five-year-olds with a pair of pliers and a foghorn. I decided early on to take in the, the worst of the worst, so I was caring for a cockatoo, still am, uh, with a twisted pelvis and a missing toe, uh, another one with six fused vertebrae in her neck, eight who tear their feathers out, and one who cuts herself so badly with her beak that she almost died three times before we finally got her taken care of. They're all doing well now. My teacher at SCORE uh, told me that uh, when you have a nonprofit, you have to learn to live on the edge of financial run. Uh, the letters asking me to sign up for new credit cards, those have gone away. And those were replaced by letters offering to consolidate my debt. I work an 18-hour day now. That includes going out to do computer jobs, which is the major way that I fund the sanctuary. I've wanted to educate people, teach them the things that I've learned. And since I'm stuck out here in the boondocks and uh, rarely get out, what I've been doing is creating two videos a month, about an hour long each video. That's about 60 hours of work a month. I put these videos out on YouTube and our channel and uh, we've got quite a following now, people coming from Facebook and Twitter. It feels good to be able to help birds all around the world. For the first time in my life, I feel that my life actually has meaning. and uh, I enjoy getting up and enjoy doing my work. Although I live like someone who's taken a vow of poverty, in some ways I'm the richest man in the world. Thanks for keeping me informed, Jay. Uh, love your show. Hi, Jay. It's Sunny from St. Paul. And I am responding to your invitation for um, an opportunity to brag about something that I do sort of um, out of the norm that has made me very happy. So I just finished listening to episode uh, 9, 9, 936. And my, my happy thing is kind of a good connection to that episode about Big Pharma because it all started when I, when I was three. My family was living in Alaska. And at that time, it wasn't even a state. That was 1957. So it was really out in the boonies. And I contracted polio. The virus kind of roosted in my Achilles tendon, so it was really never life-threatening or anything. But I had to wear a leg brace, and I still have a slight limp as a result of that illness. And then in 1998, I woke up one morning and I could barely walk. So I went to the Mayo Clinic. I got fluid drained from my knee and I got an injection of Synvisc and um, they performed a number of tests. And the culmination of that visit was um, a diagnosis of post-polio syndrome. And then their prognosis was that I would have a gradual decline in my, um, my functional mo mobility until in about 10 years time they figured I'd no longer be able to walk so I was um, pretty upset and I reported this news to my dad he was a doctor at the Mayo Clinic and um, he told me to ignore the information <laughs> because the way he put it was they have to tell me the worst case scenario and it's not written in stone just because it's the Mayo Clinic so I never told a soul about the news regarding my impending doom until maybe about a year ago when I was pretty sure that their prediction was not going to come true. And um, so here I am, seven years past D-Day. I'm still walking and, and, and I'm still bicycling and hiking and dancing, I might add. 
And um, that was kind of the start of a change in my thinking about health and wellness. And since that time, I've been diagnosed with fibromyalgia, with PSVT, which is a a non-threatening heart condition, and basal joint arthritis. And for all of these conditions, I've been prescribed various medications. I was even encouraged to join a support group for fibromyalgia sufferers. (laughs) And in each case, I applied my dad's advice, and I basically ignored the advice of whatever the specialist was that I saw. And then in 2003, after my PSVT diagnosis, I was kind of looking for alternative ways to address the symptoms because they're kind of, I don't know, they're sort of upsetting. So I tried acupuncture for a while and it didn't help that much. And a friend recommended that I go to her homeopath. So I looked that up online and I read that it's it's basically like a bunch of quackery and has no scientific merit, etc., etc. So I thought to myself, well, that is just the thing for me. <laughs> so I ended up going to my friend's homeopath and um, after an extensive like an intake interview and I had to fill out eight pages of information about myself, I eventually was given um, what's called a remedy. All homeopathic remedies are natural substances. Um, they get delivered in these tiny increments. Anyway, that helped with my PSVT symptoms. They actually stopped, but um, it addressed some other wellness issues in addition to that. So. Since that time, I've pretty much relied on homeopathy and a few other alternative therapies for most of my health and wellness needs. I still see my MD every year for regular checkups, and um, I broke my wrist in 2012, and I took Percocet after the surgery, and you know I had the surgery and everything. But even that experience was influenced by homeopathy. Uh, the doctor gave me 40 Percocet tablets, and he told me to take as many as three every four hours because he said the pain was just going to be extreme, especially the first night. But I only took about seven of the 40 because my homeopath also gave me a remedy to take prior to surgery and then in regular intervals after the surgery to mitigate the pain. Of course, I didn't tell my surgeon. (laughs) And then um, she also gave me a remedy to aid the healing of my bone. So I never required any physical therapy and my surgeon was just amazed at the flexibility and strength of my wrist and all my follow-up visits. He actually referred to me as his hero (laughs) because I had made such a remarkable recovery. So all of this is to say that with the emphasis on better living through pills, I conduct my wellness regimen, I think, well outside the norm. I don't even have aspirin or cough medicine or really anything besides band-aids and hydrogen peroxide in my medicine cabinet. I don't take any prescription drugs for any of the conditions I've been diagnosed with. So so when I have a headache, I'll lie down or maybe take a big drink of a glass of water or I just deal with it. And if my joints are sore, I maybe apply a heating pad or an ice pack and take it easy for a day. I guess what I've learned is that my symptoms are basically really good information about my lifestyle choices. So rather than take a pill or a spoonful of of cough syrup or something, which is mostly just masking symptoms, I'll try to, um, to work with my body to alleviate its pain rather than override its message by, by taking some medicine. A lot of my friends, some of my friends have been persuaded and they actually see my homeopath and some people kind of envy my energy level or the lack of medicine in my medicine cabinet, but they, they just kind of think I'm really lucky or I have a really good constitution. I, don't, I don't, actually don't blame them because we're constantly bombarded with the message that whatever annoying ailment we have is just a pill away from being controlled. 
But in my experience, good health takes patience and attention to one's body, as well as a, a willingness to listen to information that's sometimes delivered through pain or discomfort. And if we take medicine and it solves the problem right away, we think that's what works. But if we choose to go that route, I don't think that really makes the problem go away. It just um, makes the symptoms go away. And that's usually only temporary. And then when they resurface, of course, we have to take the, the medicine again. I have friends that take so many different medications, they have to keep it all straight by using those pill boxes, you know, with the days of the week written on them. <clears throat> so I think good health takes time and it takes self-engagement and it's not quite as easy as just popping a pill, but it's really so worth it to me. I sometimes, I'll think to myself, what will all the people do who rely on medicine to regulate their mood or, or, or their blood pressure? Or, their erectile dysfunction, their cholesterol, their diabetes, their restless legs, sore muscles or joints, you know, on and on and on. And what are they going to do if there's a blizzard or an earthquake or a bank failure or something and they can't get their prescriptions filled in time? <laughs> so, <laughs> don't get me wrong. I believe allopathic medicines have their place in a healthy system. It's just I think our reliance on them has caused more problems than solutions. And I just wish the medical establishment would start to think of them as complementary rather than the whole shebang. So that's all I have to say. I know it was kind of long, but thanks, Jay, for everything you do. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Katie Klubusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can either record a message on the voice memo app of your phone and email it to me, j at bestoftheleft.com, or leave a voicemail at 202-999-3991. Now, we heard today from Dawn and Sonny, and to be honest, these were not at all the types of stories that I expected, but they were actually totally perfect in their very unexpected ways. Now, Don comes to us with a story of learning to live without money or, you know, very little money for the sake of spending time doing something you're passionate about. I mean, it's the classic money doesn't buy happiness kind of story. And, you know, we've all heard that, but we could explore that a whole lot more. But for now, we're going to leave it. Maybe we'll come back to it a different day. Uh, for details on Don, check out chloesanctuary.org. And then Sunny. Uh, Sunny and I actually have been having a conversation by email for the past couple of days, and she's been teaching me a little bit about what she's learned about Buddhism, and I've been telling her about a philosophy that I've been studying recently called Stoicism, which has absolutely no relation to what people think of today as being stoical, like emotionless and all of that not related. So her description of using her pain to learn about how her body works sounds very much like an aspect of Buddhism that she was actually telling me about. The idea that you can examine feelings and desires in a sort of non-attached way in order to learn from them. You know, I'm feeling some pain. Why am I feeling that pain? Or I have a desire for a fancy new cell phone. 
why do I have a desire for a fancy new cell phone? And in that way, we can actually learn about what makes us tick if we are that self-aware of, of you know what feelings we're having. Now, I'm not sure if she even realizes this, but there is an aspect of what Sonny is doing that is very much a part of the philosophy of Stoicism. At its core, Stoicism is the understanding that great happiness and satisfaction can be achieved by voluntarily experiencing brief stents of negative thoughts or feelings, because doing so adjusts your perspective. Happiness and satisfaction aren't fixed points that we can work towards and then achieve. They are more accurately described as the distance between our expectations and our reality. If we can shift either our expectations or our reality, that's what helps us shift our happiness. Now, most of the time, we expect more and more out of life. We want better or fancier stuff. We want things to be more convenient, for us to be more comfortable. But if our reality can't manage to keep up with our expectations, then our happiness and satisfaction is actually going to shrink, even if our life gets theoretically richer or fancier or more comfortable. So for Sonny, by voluntarily experiencing brief stints of pain rather than rushing to take painkillers to mask those negative feelings, she's not only adjusting her expectation of how she should feel, but she's also expanding her range of comfort in which she can feel satisfied. Plus, I would wager that when the pain is gone, Sonny feels a greater sense of appreciation for its having left than a person who found it unacceptable for the pain to be there in the first place. You know, someone who would rush to the medicine cabinet and, you know, take the ibuprofen or whatever to, uh, to kill the pain. You know, for them, perfect comfort is the expectation, and anything less is unacceptable and, you know, should be squashed. And for Sonny, she's decided that some pain is just acceptable. It's just part of life, and therefore perfect comfort, when she feels it, actually exceeds those expectations. And it is when we can exceed our expectations that we really feel the most genuine sense of happiness. So to prove this, let's all do a quick thought experiment together so you can get the feeling of what I mean. Since the one thing I know about all of you is that you're all listening to this podcast, that means the one thing I can be sure of is that you all have a sense of hearing. Now, if you're like most people with a sense of hearing, you probably take it for granted. Now, just for a moment, imagine your life without a sense of hearing. Obviously, you wouldn't be able to listen to podcasts anymore, so that would be a pretty big tragedy. But, I mean, think about people you know or have seen who actually are deaf. I mean, they're perfectly capable of having full and happy lives. They have friends, they have fun, they learn, they work, they love. They can do all of the things that all come together to create a full, satisfying life. So there's every reason to believe that if you were suddenly struck deaf, that even though there would obviously be an adjustment period, you would come out of that adjustment and pick up life more or less where you left off, maybe headed in a slightly different direction. I mean, for instance, I couldn't keep producing this show if I were deaf, but you know, I'm confident I'd find something else to do. So life would go on, and we would all learn that our happiness is not at all dependent on our ability to hear. So we all got that? Now I've got some really amazing news for you. You're not deaf. You have a sense of hearing. It's a miracle of evolution, and it's yours for free. So having just gone through that thought experiment, admit it. Regardless of what kind of a day you were having before, maybe you were completely miserable and having a completely shitty day, 
don't you feel better now? I mean, don't you feel at least a little happier, a little more satisfied, a little bit more appreciative? I mean, that's a good feeling, right? And that is because we just adjusted your expectations in relation to your reality. And the good news is you can get that feeling just about any time you like. Just by doing a little negative visualization like we just did, you can apply that same technique to basically anything. Think about it. Let your imagination soar. Is there anything in your life that you are taking for granted or you think you need to replace with something newer and fancier in order to be happy? Do some negative visualization and you will regain your appreciation for what you already have. Now, your desire for stuff in general may never go away, but let me let you in on a little secret. The path to true contentment is to learn to channel that feeling of desire so that you desire that which you already have. I mean, there's, there's an old saying, it's not like I made this up. The old saying is, he is happiest who is content with the least. And you're like, all right, you know, that's probably true. But then you don't know how to do that. You're like, all right, like, I guess, but how do you become content with very little? Well, I'm telling you, this is how to do it. Practicing just a bit of negative visualization on occasion, which is one of the cornerstone techniques of stoicism, will help you appreciate what you already have so much that your desires for new stuff will all but melt away. This has happened for me personally. I'm not an infomercial. I'm not selling you anything. I'm just telling you, I've discovered these techniques over the last six or eight months and it has totally changed my perspective on the world. And if you're interested in details, I highly recommend the book that I read, A Guide to the Good Life, The Ancient Art of Stoic Joy. It's written by a philosophy professor, William Irving. And frankly, I mean, I could talk about this stuff for hours. Maybe we'll continue the conversation if you have any thoughts or questions or stories of happiness of your own that you would like to chime in with. Again, record a message and send it to me by email or leave a voicemail at 202-999-3991. Now, quickly before I go, I want to thank again QuickBooks Self-Employed for sponsoring today's episode. If you work for yourself, save up to 50% for an entire year on the new QuickBooks Self-Employed. It helps separate your business and personal expenses. It helps take the guesswork out of estimated quarterly taxes. You can try QuickBooks Self-Employed and receive 50% off at tryselfemployed.com slash left. Now that is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash left. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame how we get so trained We can't see past all the sad stories And wonder what we're missing We can't see past all the sad stories And forget how to listen We can't see past all the sad stories And wonder what we're doing can't see past all the sad stories and forget who it is before